Kids are now dismissed for Kids Church. Chris is teaching today. Thank you, Chris. This morning is Pentecost Sunday. As most or many of you know, it's been in the bulletin for the last couple weeks. That's why I wore red today. Now, last year, I didn't have a red shirt. This year, I have two red shirts. And Troy's like, red is a bold color for you. That you normally don't wear um, red that often. I was wearing a red one yesterday, and she's like, we have to wear that tomorrow. And I was like, I have two red shirts. <laughs> they look exactly the same, but I have two of them. Um, so this is the day that we celebrate the coming of the Spirit, and yet we also are finishing our series, sort of walking through seven disciplines for the church um, mission, prayer. And so prayer and, and the Spirit, I think, connect together well. And if you're wondering how that is, it really ties together in this sort of Romans reading that Don read for us, that the role that the Spirit plays in interceding for us. And we'll get to that towards the end of the sermon, but... I wanted to start off with, with something else. And so one of the things, as you noticed, is that Acts 2 reading was up on the slide. Because earlier in the week, it was like it's Pentecost. So we read Acts 2, 1 through 21 or something like that every year. And for some reason, associate pastors, probably because of its proximity to Memorial Day, often get Pentecost as a Sunday to preach. So I probably preached on Acts 2, 1 through 21 as an associate pastor eight times. And I'm thinking, man, that, that passage is great, but but there must be something else to do. And then I remembered that the lectionary actually brings us into John's way in which the Spirit or the Advocate comes amongst us. And so most of us, when we think of the way that the disciples receive the Spirit, we go right to that Acts 2 scene from the first part of Acts where the disciples are waiting and the Spirit breaks upon them with wind and fire and people speak in tongues, but here in their own language. It's a miraculous scene, and that's what most of us think of Pentecost. And funny enough, it also leads to this idea within us that like, when the Spirit comes, miraculous things happen. They become a one-to-one -one comparison. And yet John's Gospel provides this whole different alternative frame in which the Spirit comes. First, Jesus teaches about it, but even more so is he's up in the upper room after he breathes out the Spirit upon the disciples. He says, my peace be with you. See, if Christian imagination had equal room for, for John and Acts, in which it should be, I guess, because they're both in the Bible, we would know that the Spirit can come with power and strength, but the Spirit can also come in an upper room with disciples gathered, where Jesus breathes it out upon us. But I think it's so often that most of us, when we think of Spirit-filled and Spirit-living our lives, we go to the miraculous. And yet John's Gospel offers this other way in which the Spirit comes amongst us. One of the things that I love about this passage from John is that many times we think, wouldn't it be great if Jesus was here? Wouldn't it be great if Jesus walked into our sanctuary, and instead of having to listen to me, you guys could listen to Jesus. He's a remarkably short preacher, minus the Sermon on the Mount. He never really goes very long. Um, he's very efficient. He often leaves you scratching your head. He takes questions, but rarely answers them. Um, but that's sort of the way he is. And so wouldn't it be great if Jesus were here in the flesh so that we could see him and meet him and greet him and sort of begin to know these things? And I think we think that often. But Jesus, in John's Gospel, particularly in this passage, seems to think we're better off without him here. That when he goes to the Father and sends out his advocate, his spirit, but that's when things begin to open up, that things begin to change. 
that his presence can be more real to people when his spirit goes out, not less real. This is one of the amazing parts about Christianity that we kind of hit on way back on Easter before we started this series, is that one of the things that separates Christians is not that Jesus was just great, and it's not that he was just God, but he, the dead one, is now living to us. He's still a presence in the world and in our lives. And the way that he becomes that is through his spirit going on. And so as much as we might think it'd be better if we had sort of an earthly Jesus to come and be with us, the thing that makes churches, the thing that pushes this message out into the world, the thing that transforms the way in which people gather to worship isn't the physically earthly Jesus, but it's the spirit that goes out after that. It's no small thing that this passage in God's gospel where he says, you guys know where I'm going, I'm going back to the Father, but it shouldn't cause anguish for you. God is going to be more present, more real through his spirit. And I think it's this is particularly hard for me, and maybe you feel it in the same boat, is that for me, Jesus is like this historical figure that we know was God, and so we come to worship him. And so it's this lingering memory that keeps us doing this. But what in fact is actually happening when Christians gather to worship, or supposed to be happening, is that actually his spirit has regathered and reconstituted us as his body. And his spirit is living and present and active. It's not the memory of Jesus as this guy who lives that makes churches. It's the, the spirit coming that makes communities of faith. And so that's why Pentecost, I think, is such a pivotal holiday for us. Now, in Acts, it's, it's interesting in that Acts 2 passage that the disciples have not quite figured out how to leave Jerusalem until the Spirit comes. They just stay there, waiting. For this message to go out into the world, it takes the equipping of the Spirit, even in Acts as well. And so that's sort of the way in which this thing moves us into mission. And yet our current sermon series that's ending today has been on mission, sort of seven practices for mission. What does it mean to, to practice the Lord's table, not just in the church, but to bring it out into the neighborhood and bring it out into our lives? What does it mean for us to proclaim the faith in the world, to be ministers and ambassadors of reconciliation, to, to have... Um, uh, to be with the least of these, to be with kids, to have a mutual life-giving nature of the church. Those are the sort of six practices we've done. And the last one, this one is called um, kingdom prayer. Now, as many of you know, we spent um, eight Sundays in the fall walking through the Lord's Prayer. And one of the things that I loved to say is this quote from the theologian Karl Barth over and over again, is that to collapse, to clasp hands in prayer to grab hands in prayer, is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. To join in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. This is one of those things that we believe about prayer in the way that it brings us together. And so to pray that thy kingdom come is actually to pray that something else in the song that we we sang, it said that to invade this town and invade this world and invade this life. 
that as the kingdom of heaven advances in our prayers, and this kingdom prayer, starting with, with the Lord's prayer, but other prayers throughout the Bible, is we begin to say that God's place come into this place. So prayer creates this, this space for us to know, to know, first off, God as Father, which is this, we talked about this with being with kids, is to put your place in a place of humility. 21st century North American white male, I don't really need anyone or anything, is an easy thing to sort of fall to. But, to, but to, for the prayer that Jesus teaches us to begin with, our Father, not my Father, because it's, it's a corporate identity too, our Father, it suggests too that I have people who are with me who pray that prayer. It's more than just me. But it also puts me into a relational place where in many ways I'm not in charge but that somebody is there who hears me. When we talked about that petition, we talked about awaking in the middle of the woods in life. And there's this idea that like, if we just pray and close our eyes, all of it will go away. And, and this is sort of how like psychologists, there's, we talked about, if you look up meditation or prayer apps on the app store on the iPhone, there's like 10,000. I mean, there's a ton, but most of them don't actually believe that there is a real presence out there that doesn't just leave you in the middle of the woods. That there's somebody there who we expect to hear from. One of the easiest questions I had on a seminary test was in my prayer class. And the woman at regularly at the beginning of class would say, 90% of prayer is listening. 90% of prayer is listening. And so like the first question on the test is, what percent of prayer is listening? And I was like, well, I'm not sure I agree with you that 90% of it is, but I know if I want to get the answer right, I have to write down 90% of prayer is listening. Um, and so we have this way in which we come to prayer, which we sort of expect to hear something. This is the place where the Spirit meets us. This is the place where the Spirit comes to us. And so the Lord's Prayer doesn't just give us a relationship, but it gives us um, a life together and makes us participants in this. Pray that God's kingdom would come, but God invites us into that as well. Being part of his kingdom conspiracy, be a part of his kingdom project for the world is what we're called into the Lord's Prayer. And so this brings us into this, this movement out into the world, too. As we've been walking through this, we've talked about how each of the disciplines don't just stay in the realm of the church, but they push us out into mission. And so this Sunday we have Pentecost, the Spirit, the active agent that pushes us out in the mission. And we're talking about prayer. And prayer, as he says in the book, if you've been following along in the book, is really the thread that, that holds them all together. It went at the end of the book because sometimes your most important idea goes at the end of the book. But it could have very easily gone at the front of the book. But the practices that he talks about flow out of a life of kingdom prayer of praying that, that thy kingdom come, thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And so we had those signs, and, and there's a card up there that said, in Colorado as it is in heaven. And my fear was that people would go like, oh, Colorado is like heaven. Um, I gave it to the, the Colorado donut shop guy, and he hung it up behind his stand. You'll see it down there. And I think that's the way that most people see it in the donut shop. They go, oh, in Colorado as it is in heaven. Colorado feels like heaven as I'm a tourist here, and it's beautiful and wonderful, and it's easier to... Um, this is one of my pet peeves about people feeling close to God when they're on vacation. But anyways, um, 
that's aside the point, is that that was my fear. But really what in Colorado is in, is in heaven means is that there is dysfunction here. That the kingdom that God has for us, the kingdom in which there is no hunger, in which addiction will be defeated, in which the diseases that cripple and destroy, in which, uh, and as Jesus goes out, uh, he proclaims freedom to the prisoner and sight to the blind, that this kingdom is not in Colorado yet. And so the point of those signs, and I maybe was, I should have, it should come with a card that explains it, um, is to say that this is not the place of heaven yet. That we're asking that God's kingdom, God's will be manifest here the way that it's manifest in heaven. So to say that prayer, the beginning to pray together is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world is to know disorder in the world. Know and see places of disorder. If everything's fine, then you don't have a lot of use for prayer. But if you have the ability to see that things are not as they should be, that things haven't been repaired or put back together yet, to pray that God's kingdom come, thy will be done, is actually a movement of faith into participating in the world in a different way. But in John 16, we have this amazing passage, too, as well, that Lisa read for us. It's a passage that I honestly haven't thought that much about, but the, the way in which he says that there are these things that will be revealed to you is quite amazing. He says that, that I will show the ways in which the world is wrong, about sin and righteousness and judgment, about sin. I will show the way the, way the world is wrong about what, uh, sorry, I'm not in the right passage. I'm in the right passage, just not in the right section of the passage. Um, but truly, I tell you, it is good for me that I'm going away. Unless I go away, that the Spirit will not come for you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment. It will prove the world to be wrong about who I am because I'm going to the Father. And it will prove the world to be wrong about who won. So I want to talk about these three things just real fast. Is that, that when Jesus says that he proves the world to be wrong, He's talking about sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, this is an interesting way in which Jesus in John's gospel, the world is more dark in John's gospel. It's not dark in all the New Testament, but John certainly has, there's two paths and there's one to life and there's one to death is the way a different early Christian book starts. And so John is very like bifurcated. There is light and there is darkness and they don't meet very often. There's no gray, really, in the book of John. But for John, the world is often this thing that sort of lives in captivity opposed to what God is doing through Jesus. What he says is that I'm going to teach them where they're wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. And if you look at the character of who Jesus is, one of the ways in which we see that we're wrong about sin is that we often think of sin as these little acts that we commit that add up to, to like this big wrong thing with the world. And it's kind of true, but really what John, Jesus is exposing to be true about sin is the fact that there's this massive rock in the world that bends towards its destruction and everybody's sort of captive to it. 
It's not just like, in, in, in for John's gospel, it's not just like a covenant and a little bit more practice around the law would fix this, but that there's something much larger that needs to be extracted from the world. There's much more venom than we think. It is just individual acts. Then he says that, that, that the world is wrong about something. They're wrong about who he is. This is an important one because it pushes us into telling the world as Christians who Jesus is. And it's good that we do so, but it's also unfortunate that we break it into sort of this cognitive act of can you accept who Jesus is for you? But who Jesus is in John's gospel is God who has come to live amongst us, to call us into life and light, to transform the nature of the way things are. To say you know who Jesus is isn't just to be able to answer a test question, what percent of prayer is listening. It's to actually be able to proclaim something about the way that Jesus has come to repair this place, to put the world back to right. So as Jesus comes from the Father, he comes with a message much grander than just tell people who I am in the way that maybe we think about it. Tell people who I am as the one who is the origin of all things, the light who came into the world. And when the light came into the darkness, the darkness decided to gang up on it and extinguish the light. The world in John's gospel is this place of darkness. And so when they think about who Jesus is, the world in John's gospel, it's this place that that can't handle, that God and goodness, the person who God resides in, should be here. The last one about judgment, because the prince of the world now stands condemned. This is my favorite part often about the gospel and the spirit, is it gives us a bifocal vision to see what's wrong with the world and also that that is passing. And so if you think about glasses, is that like we see the world, it, it maybe think of 3D, it, it becomes more better if you think of a 3D movie, is that what, what the, sort of the spirit does for us is it says that the world we see is this one-dimensional movie where it often seems like evil and sin and injustice and the powers of darkness are winning. And one of the things that happens as we live in the world as, as a theme in John's gospel is that we become captive to that mindset as well. We begin to say, yes, it seems like all those forces are the true forces that win this world, dominate this world, and say how this world is. Some Christians then will, will actually become very captive to, to making sure it isn't that way. But what happens when they move into that movement, they start to use the same tools that the world uses. So it's not just that they're becoming captive to the ways in which the world sort of keeps those forces and power, but they're like, well, if these are the tools that they use to do that, then how do we utilize those tools for good? I think that's part of the struggle. But what happens with the spirit, according to John's gospel, is we gain sort of this three-dimensional world to see that those things are actually failing. Those things can no longer stay in power because of what God has done in Jesus Christ. That there is this final victory that's coming. And so we begin to see it a little bit differently. We begin to look at the world with eyes that says, what we see is these ways in which sin and injustice and the powers and all these things are part of the distortion that often seems to be winning. But that's not so. 
While they might be the last word of a battle, the last shot fired as, as it's ending, what God has done in Jesus is Jesus goes to the Father sort of in this passage, and the Spirit comes amongst us. Is he has given us the eyes to see that this is not the way it's going to be. That God is going to restore this place, this world. And he's going to bring it back to the way it should be. And so how does this all connect to prayer? How does this actually make something of this sermon that's supposed to be on two themes? I think that's where Romans helps us. Because one thing I love about Romans 8 that Lisa read for us, or that Don read for us, is that it puts us in this Trinitarian realm. That we're being drawn to the Father, and that we, we have the Spirit, and we cry out, Abba, Father, and we become known to God. But this, this thing that it starts with is it says, or that Don started with, is that the world groans in anguish. Creation groans in this anguish. Romans uses the word creation instead of world. But this world is groaning under the birth pains of something. So if we think about the world without the glasses, what it looks like is just pain. But when you think about the world with the glasses, what it looks like is the birth of a new thing coming. One of my uh, favorite old thinkers, or not that old, Flannery Connor, says that people think faith is an electric blanket, but when in fact it's the cross. But a favorite newer thinker, Brené Brown, talks about labor and faith, and, and she said to, to her pastor, she was like, I just want like it to be easy. I want it to be like a drug that makes my life a little bit easier. I want it to be an electric blanket. And what he said is that, that faith is more like a midwife that tells you it's supposed to hurt. Um, the pain is part of the process. And so what it says in Romans is that, that creation exists in this anguish groaning, that Paul actually caused birth pains. It's about this birth of the new thing. But then it says we exist in those groaning sort of two as well. Well, this is not great news if the world is in that pain and we are in that pain. But what it says that God's Spirit groans with us as well. And there's a, a beautiful way this is translated in another, um, another Bible than, that we're not using today, is, is that with sighs too deep for words, the Spirit intercedes with us for sighs too deep for words. That's a powerful image for us. And, and one of the things that I think of when I think of size to deep for word is my mom is a sire. She sighs about like bad food, um, but she really sighs about anguish and pain. So me and Kelly, knowing this about my mom, when I called her to tell her that I have multiple sclerosis, we knew like, how long will the sigh be? <laughs> Good 20 seconds. Okay, so what are we going to do about it? Um, but there's this way in which sighs capture our discomfort with the way the world is. Things are not as they should be. And so the world groans, and we groan, but God groans as well with these sighs that are too deep for words. 
And so we've been using these three circles to talk about the disciplines. And what I wanted to sort of raise today for these three is they, they should push us to the places in the world where sighs are too deep for words. The first circle is this closed circle that's sort of the church. This is the circle we learn to pray in and to be together in. But it's also the circle of life where we begin to see that these are the birth pains of something that's going to come, but it is certainly painful and groaning at the moment. It's also where we pick up our second set of eyes to see the world. But the second one is where we sort of go out into mission a little bit. We go out in two or three gathered together, and we, we sigh together in those places. For many of us, this is coming up uh, two weeks from now when we go to extended table to sit with the people who deal with addiction there, and depression, and loneliness. is to be locating ourselves in the place with prayer where sighs are too deep for words. And we don't say, well, you're stuck here because that's the way creation is. You're stuck here because that's where I'm stuck. But we say that the Spirit does it with us. And so we go and we join other people in the world where this is true. And the last one is sort of where we go by ourselves into the neighborhood. And this is where I think we meet people daily. But we sigh with in this where it's too deep for words. And what I want to say is that one of the things, and I don't do it enough, is that when most people come to you with hurt, and most people talk about hurt, the people talk about good news and people talk about hurt more often than not. And what happens in between is sort of like, how's the weather? Um, not true, but um, that's sort of like the world we live in, is to offer to pray for them opens a door. So often people will come to me as a pastor and say, this is what I'm dealing with. I'm dealing with anguish and, and depression and loneliness. I'm unemployed and all this. And, and what I say is I listen because that's what I should do. And then I try to provide some sort of context and help and, and blah, blah, blah. But often I forget to say, can I pray for you? Can we pray together? Can we go into this groaning where, where in your anguish, the spirit will intercede for us together? Because what the prayer does in that moment is it opens up a whole new space where something can happen, where God can move in, where Jesus can become present. So these are sort of the three ways in which we can practice this. But, but I want to end with the way that Romans ends on this. And we know in all good things God works for good of those who love him and have called according to his purpose. There is uh, almost nothing worse than having somebody tell you that when they haven't sighed with you about the anguish and pain that you're in. I don't know if anybody's ever said that to you where you're really caught in something tight and dark. And somebody just says, well, just know that all good things work together for the God, purpose of God loves. And they haven't sat with you in the darkness either. Sounds cheap. It's the reason why the chapters and verses are really hard for the Bible, because we can memorize chapters and verses. But really, if you flow with the text there, what you find out is that this is not something cheap to offer. It's something that reverberates deep into the realm of creation. But in the same way the Spirit helps us in a weakness, we don't know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans, and he who searches our heart knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Come, Holy Spirit, let us pray.
God, we invite your spirit into this place of prayer this morning. Place of being together. It's that your spirit would come with power upon us. Your spirit would move us, animate us, make us agents of your healing love in the world. Make us participants of the story you've begun in Jesus. May your spirit be a help to us. Pentecost may seem like a day that we celebrate, but it's actually meant to be a marking of the ways in which you are present with your people and your church now. Come here celebrate together, to see the Spirit at work, to breathe it in. But as we go out into the world, into our neighborhoods, into our marriages, into our um, schools, into our lives, it goes with us. And through that, we can join the world in its frustration to see the new birth in which you are about to bring. Amen.